0: Let's pray again before we study. God, us to your truth this morning. Lord God, us to your truth this morning. Change hearts and minds, and grant that I might speak without misleading those who, are here this, who hear this message. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You're not the only one who feels like this. Feeling like you lose more than you win. Like life is just an endless hill you climb. You try and try, but never arrive. I'm telling you something, this racing, this running. Oh, you're working way too hard. You're working way too hard. And this perfection you're chasing is just energy wasted because he loves you like you are. So go ahead and live like you're loved. It's okay to act like you've been set free. His love has made you more than enough, so go ahead and be who he made you to be and live like you're loved. Live like you're loved. So how are you living this morning? Are you living like you're loved? Are you acting like you've been set free? Do you believe his love is more than enough? Are you trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross? The author of Live Like You Loved placed some context around the song, explaining that God's love for us is not based on how good we are, but it's based on how good God is and what he has already done for us. Understanding this, we are to live like we've been set free. It's not about what we can do, but about what he has done. Now contrast this with a popular Christian author and mega church pastor, who has a book on how we should live. He says that you need to enlarge your vision, develop a healthy self-image, discover the power of your thoughts, let go of the past, find strength through adversity, live to give, and choose to be happy. This, according to him, is how you live your best life now. So then, how are we to live? The Hulk Nelson way or the mega church pastor way? Are we to live Christ-centered lives knowing our value in him or self-centered lives recreating ourselves? Our passage this morning tells us it's the former, not the latter. When we focus on ourselves, we focus on the wrong person. Peter reminds us as Christians, it's not about us. It's about Christ. So how are you to live as Christians? How are we to live as Christians? The book of 1 Peter is instructive. Writing to elect exiles... Paraphrasing one author, Peter instructs the brothers and sisters to persevere in the faith while suffering persecution and doing so with full hope. They can do this because they will certainly enjoy end-time salvation because they are already enjoying God's saving promises here and now through the death and resurrection of Christ. So how are we to live? Peter says broadly we are to live victoriously. The battle has already been won. Peter also writes in specific terms. John MacArthur summarizes it this way. Christians are to live without losing hope, without becoming bitter, while trusting in the Lord, and while looking for his second coming. It is in this second coming that we live our best life. Here we are simply sojourners, looking, indeed longing, for the day that Christ returns. We are not to chase the material worth of this world. That might be someone's best life, but it's not the Christian's best life. Christians must live with the proper expectations. The culture, especially in the age of social media, teaches that we should all be happy and prosperous. The Christian worldview is that we live in a sinful world, groaning, suffering under the fall of man. We should expect hardship, illness, and suffering, but not without hope and joy. Having looked at the big picture of 1 Peter, we now turn our attention to the passage we will study this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 1015. If you're here this morning, and you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take the Pew Bible as a gift from us to you, as long as you'll agree to read it. Or just see me at the end of the service, and I'll give you a Bible of your own. First, let me address the heading in the ESV. Just above verse 8, you see the heading, Suffering for Righteousness' Sake. These headings, of course, are not part of the inspired scripture. This heading was not created by Peter. In most instances, these headings are very helpful and key us in on suffering for their faith. Suffering even here. Peter is writing to a group of believers suffering for their faith. Suffering, in some ways, is the big picture of the entire book. And it really starts to be addressed more subtly in verse 4 here, however. So we'll t- save the big picture on suffering for a later date. While we're here, however, we should be clear that Christians suffer. This statement is a direct contrast to the prosperity gospel of so many televangelists, which is no gospel at all. They want us to believe that the Christian life does not involve suffering. I like the way one theologian responded to this. He said, these televangelists do not represent a clear and careful enough biblical theology of suffering. Their worldview seems more shaped by what people want to hear than what they need to hear. It's like a father who inadequately prepares his children for the harsh realities of life. Peter has been doing just the opposite. He has more than prepared us for life and more specifically, Christian living. For instance, he has provided instructions on living before God our Father, That's in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 31. Instructions on living before the world, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 12. How to live under the government authorities, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. How to live as employees and employers, 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25. And how to live as husbands and wives in a Christian marriage, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7. And after providing all these instructions, Peter turns to a specific set of or common general instructions to apply to Christians in all circumstances. So how should we live? Listen now as I read 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for that dish you recall that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the faith that we are to live first, to evil. These verses tell us, that we are to live first, by pursuing Christian virtues, and second, by pursuing peace. First, pursuing Christian virtues, and second, pursuing peace. First, we are to pursue Christian virtues. Look again at verse eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. If you're a Christian, this is how you're required to live. Peter does not limit the explication of his text to wives and husbands, to slaves and masters, but says, all of you. So brothers and sisters, you are to have these virtues, and the first virtue you are to have is unity of mind. Let's be honest. The thought of unity in a number of circumstances is difficult, but here Peter requires it. We are to live harmoniously, and this does not mean we have to like the same songs, and sing the same notes, and have harmony in our music. Only a few of us have voices that can blend with every tune. For the vision of the people, it's an inside joke. This is not about our singing voices. This is not about the people we enjoy or prefer to spend time with. We like to be around the people we agree with. We have our cliques. We want to be around those who we share status with, whether social, economic, or political. But this is not what Peter has in mind. It might seem like it sometimes, but not everyone here loves politics and the nationals. We're not all financially stable, and that's not required to be a member of a Christian church. The unity required in this passage is on substantive gospel-related matters. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We must be united in our love for Jesus. When it comes to questions about the color of the carpet, or believe it or not, whether we should have drums in the church, unity is not required. The essentials of the Christian faith are where we must have unity. We must be united around what God has done for us through the work of his son on the cross. As a Christian church, we want to meet the goal that Paul establishes in Romans 15, verses 5 to 6. This is what he writes to the church at Rome. May the God of endurance, Jesus, that together you may grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Too often, because of our own selfish desires, we're found to be in strife instead of unity. We're supposed to be peacemakers, not troublemakers, but we cause disruption and disharmony. This is because we're self-centered instead of Christ-centered. We haven't followed the example of Christ like we should. This is his example from Romans 15, verses 2 to 3. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. As one theologian said, most of us are willing to have one mind as long as that one mind is our mind. But the mind we're supposed to have here, the mind that's supposed to unite us, is the mind of Christ. In order to have the mind of Christ, we need to know him and know his word. So brothers and sisters, let's give ourselves to the study of God's word so that we can know him and unite around the eternal spiritual matters. This is what is critical, agreeing that God is sovereign over all things, not whether the bulletins are folded correctly. Let's give ourselves to unity. If we are a unified body, this should lead us to show sympathy towards each other. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, from the middle of verse 24 to 26, But God has so composed the body, given greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together this passage should remind the members of this church of our church covenant where we covenant or promise to rejoice in each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows in order to show sympathy we have to forget about self identify with the pains and sorrows of others and commit to self-sacrifice sympathy is beyond feeling sorry for each other it is one thing to tell someone i feel your pain but it's another to share in their grief by praying and caring for them. Perhaps you provide them a meal when they're sick or sit with them at the hospital while their mom is undergoing surgery. Sympathy requires action. It is not just an expression, but actively participating to demonstrate that we are passionate and really care about our brother or sister. It is being close to them, not sharing in their suffering from a distance. And let me just note quickly that sympathy is not mope with those who mope and complain with those who complain. We're not to encouraged self-centeredness, but to point our brothers and sisters to the hope we have in Christ. The hope we have in Christ encourages us to exemplify brotherly love. Our love for each other must be sincere, and we must stretch the limits of this love. This kind of love exhibits itself by meeting the needs of others. It is the kind of love displayed in Romans 12, verses 9 to, 10, 9 to 10. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. This is a kind of love that involves loyalty and commitment. As Proverbs 1717 17 states, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. It is the sacrificial love displayed by Jesus in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What kind of love do you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you ready and willing to sacrifice for them? To give up your Saturday morning to help someone in the congregation move? To drop everything at a moment's notice? to watch the children of someone in church so that they, can have, they don't have to take three kids to a doctor's visit? Remember how the Apostle John instructs us in 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth." So brotherly love must be active. Brotherly love must be active. Let me just say that I think it's difficult, if not impossible, to show brotherly love without church membership. You cannot love Jesus and not love his church. Christianity is not a long-ranger spiritual experience. We're the body of Christ, which says that we're an organized gathering. and we are to love and care for each other, we cannot do that while watching online and without accountability. When you identify with the body of Christ through church membership, it tells the other members that they should also focus on loving you. Remember the words of Jesus from John 13, verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, this is not a suggestion, but a command. Let's continue to give ourselves to loving one another. If we're displaying brotherly love, then it's very likely that we're displaying the Christian virtue Peter describes as tender-hearted. In essence, we are displaying compassion, and compassion does not mean pity. Instead, it is the opposite of cold and callous. It is what Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Matthew 9:36 says that Jesus had compassion for the crowds because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Are you moved with compassion to care for others? Are you long-suffering and bearing with one another in love? Do you strive for a love that is continuous and unconditional? This is the kind of love that Christians experience in Christ and the kind that we're required to pursue. Peter has one more virtue for us to consider in verse 8. He says that we are to have a humble mind. Too many people today see humility as a sign of weakness and shame. But Peter says this is a Christian virtue. The world demands that we stand up for ourselves, show some pride, and demonstrate some self worth. How many times have we heard the phrase, defend your honor? Make no mistake, humility is not a call to be self degrading, but it is a call to be self sacrificing, the needs of others a priority. This is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 of Any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This call to be other-focused means, and this is difficult to hear, it's ultimately not about you. It's ultimately not about you. You're not the center of the universe. We've all been hurt. We've all been around those we consider to be unsympathetic, those who lack compassion, and I'm talking about inside the church with those who claim to be Christians. I'm sorry you've had that experience, but this text doesn't tell you to withdraw, to protect yourself. It directs you and me to give ourselves and to give more to pursue meeting the needs of others. Peter had seen a very clear example of Jesus himself being humble. Jesus assumed in chapter 13, and look with me, the night he instituted the Lord's Supper. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13, and look with me at verses 3 to 5. You can find that on page 900 of the Bibles provided. verses 3 to 5 of John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Not only had Peter seen this, but he had also received instructions from it. Look down at verses 12 to 15. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example so that you should also do just as I have done to you. So how are you living in light of these instructions? Are you washing the feet of your brothers and sisters in Christ, or only insisting that your feet be washed? Are you accepting service and not returning it? I praise God for this congregation, your congregation who serves and you do it quietly, whether it's our sister Celia up cleaning the church practically after every Sunday morning service, or our brother Ray, even on crutches or in a boot, bringing bagels for us to enjoy for breakfast. This is humble service. It's a clear example of how we should live as we pursue Christian virtues. But Christian virtues is not the only thing we're required to pursue from this passage. Peter tells us, and this is our second point, that we're required to pursue peace. I will pursue peace and show sympathy to you this morning by making the second point shorter than the first. Peter tells us that we're required to pursue peace and how to pursue peace. As Christians, especially when we're mistreated, listen again to verses 9 to 12. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you recall that you may obtain a blessing whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who are not for letting bygones be bygones. We live in an eye for an eye generation. We're not for letting bygones be bygones. But there is no typo in the text. We cannot read it to say curse those who curse you or intend to do you harm. We're to be the exact opposite. We are to bless. This, my friends, is countercultural. When someone hurts us or the ones we love, what is our response? If you've been around me long enough, you might have heard me utter the phrase, make them pay. One time I uttered this at a baseball game, and the pitcher I was coaching hit the next batter. That was not my intention and I was labeled as a coach without sportsmanship. I have sportsmanship. (laughs) I tell this story to confess that while I never intended to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, at least in this instance, too often I stand convicted with you for not always responding like Jesus has instructed. Listen to these instructions from Luke chapter 6 verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. This is how we pursue peace. Not only did Jesus give us instructions, he provided us an example. Listen to 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We are not to be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. What are you doing in these situations? Are you making them pay? Are you secretly wishing harm, or are you responding like Peter instructs and blessing This is how we pursue peace. This is how we express our love for our enemies. We bless them. And what compels us to do that is our love for God. We await his perfect justice, praying that our actions will cause those who oppose us to repent and believe. How are we to bless those who hate us? This is a difficult task. Hang on, William. You're telling me I need to bless those who delight in mistreating me and making my life miserable? And I would say, I'm only repeating what Jesus has told us to do. Matthew chapter five, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We can bless them by loving them. This might be as simple as meeting some of their needs when you see them hurting or struggling, or just listening to them when you sense they need someone to talk to. We can bless them by praying for their salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. First of all, then, I urge that with supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Lord converted you so he can convert those who are persecuting you, those who are making you miserable. So we should pray for them, pray for them to be converted. We can also bless them through forgiveness. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Let me just note one caveat here. This passage cannot and should not be read to permit others to abuse or hurt you. This is not in their best interest or yours. We are to pursue the best interest of others and allowing them to abuse or hurt you is not in their best interest. They do not benefit from inflicting intentional harm on another person. This is not God's purpose for their life. So if you're in an abusive relationship, you should certainly pray for conversion but you must report the abuser and not believe that you're simply to endure the abuse. Reporting the abuser is not returning evil for evil. Returning to the obligation to bless. Blessing is the example Jesus has given us and we're to bless so that we might obtain a blessing. And this is the ultimate blessing. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, tune in right now to hear about the most important blessing you could ever receive. We have all committed evil. We have insulted Jesus. Do you realize that your sin is an offense to God? We have all insulted him and disobeyed him. And our sin, yours and mine, caused Jesus to be nailed to a cross and die. God, who is holy, has every reason to condemn us to pay us back with evil for the evil we have done. He could make us pay with the wages of sin, which is death. But instead, he blesses. Instead of condemning sinners to hell, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live the life that we're required to live, a life without sin, a life without repaying evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, a perfect life. After living the perfect life, Jesus was condemned to death, not for his sins, but for ours yours and mine he paid the price for evil he made the payment for those who have repented and trust in him we know that the payment Jesus made was validated we know that his sacrifice was accepted and this was shown by God powerfully raising Jesus from the dead he got up from the grave and declared that sin and death had been defeated so the blessing of heaven is secure for those who turned to him but know this If you don't believe that Jesus lived for you, that Jesus died for you, and that he was resurrected from the dead for you, you will pay the price for your sin. You will be eternally condemned to the hellfire. Friend, I invite you. Indeed, I implore you right now. Trust in the one who can save you from your evil deeds. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about that, feel free to find me at the door at the end of the service. I'd be happy to talk to you about that. So Christian, how are you living? Are you living in pursuit of peace? Are you blessing instead of cursing? Christian, recognize that blessing others is not an option. Peter writes that this is our calling. When you fulfill this calling, it is not only the eternal blessing of heaven that you will receive, but there are some here and now benefits to living a Christian life. Look again at verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is a direct quote from Psalm 34 that we read earlier. I think Peter quotes it so that his statement about loving life and seeing good days is not taken too far out of context. The prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, have us believe that Christians do not suffer, but you cannot read this to say Christians will not suffer. In Psalm 34, David is certainly suffering. He is hiding in cages and fleeing from Saul, who was threatening his life. David had the opportunity to kill Saul. On more than one occasion, Saul was delivered over for David to kill him. But David refused to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed the one the Lord had declared to be king over Israel, until such time that the Lord lifted, fulfilled his promise to David that David would be king. David was directed by his honor and love for God, not his own virtue. Instead, David trusted. As a Christian, we should love life and see good days, but there will be bad days. Just ask anyone who works on capital. Hope and a divine blessing, but here I am to tell you that when you have hope and a divine blessing, you will see the good days. Your ultimate joy will will not ebb and flow based on the circumstances of this world. Whether you struck out yesterday or whether you missed out on a promotion at work, whether the relationship you spent so much time invested in failed or whether the new used car you just bought turned out to be a lemon. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're in line for a divine blessing, one that you will inherit, it's guaranteed. There's no chance that the will can be re- rewritten. It cannot be taken away. So, how does keeping your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit strike you as loving life and seeing good days? If someone came up to you and said, I'm going to have a great day, and you asked them, What are you planning to do? And they replied, Keep my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking deceit. You would be surprised. I would be too. The world doesn't see this as a good day. Vacation. A good day is buying the biggest house and the nicest car. A good day is leaving for vacation. Loving life is sleeping in and hanging out with your friends, staying up way too late. What's the point here? There's nothing wrong with having nice things or even staying up way too late sometimes and sleeping in. Uh, but Peter's concerned about us sinning when it comes to the good life. And sin happens way too often. Christians are to be separate and distinct from the world, but too often the riches of the world pull us into living like the world for the money, for the fame, for the notoriety. That's not the good life. That's the sin life. The party life that I see so many in this city live is empty, damning, and destructive. The good life on the other hand is one that remembers and focuses on God. Remember how Solomon concluded Ecclesiastes? This is Solomon, who asked for wisdom, but lived what he thought was a good life because of the money, power, and women that he had. In the end, he wished he had avoided it all. This is what he writes: and what he wrote in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I had no pleasure in them. Solomon had no pleasure in the good days when he forgot the Creator. It was all vanity. The material wealth of this world fades, but the blessings of heaven remain. And let me be clear, this is a blessing, it's an inheritance, not something that you have earned or could earn. So yes, we're called to keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit, and we must endeavor to do so. But we must also recognize that our good works do not earn the divine blessing. To state this in absolute terms, salvation is not the result of your good works. Salvation is not the result of your good works or personal effort. It is God who transforms us, and only he can make us righteous and worthy. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one, to one. Christ is the one who sanctifies us. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Christ is the one who sanctifies us and cleanses us. Christ is the one us is the one who sanctifies us and cleanses us. So what we see in verses 10 to 12 is that in order to live the good days, we need the right standards and the right motive. Jesus has set the standard for us, and we have seen it. The standard we see for the Christian life, especially in verses 10 and 11, is one of forgiveness. Forgiveness breaks down the wall of hostility. Having received forgiveness for our sins, we must extend it to others. This is made clear from the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. In this parable, a servant who was indebted to his master pleaded for forgiveness and was released of his debt. The servant who was forgiven went and mistreated someone else who owed him money and refused to forgive the debt. When the primary master heard about this, the one who had exercised forgiveness... He was indignant, and we see the outcome in verses 32 to 35. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here we are once again confronted with the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the only motive that can change us to live like we're called. We must be changed. If we just have the command on how to live without the power of the Holy Spirit changing us, then either we will have pride or despair which are two sides of the same self-centeredness corn. Focus on ourselves and our own effort, whether good or bad. Hearing the imperative without meditating on the gospel will likely just lead to guilt for not living how Christ calls us to live. We live for Christ because we are loved. We are not trying to merit his love for us. This is the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religion. We cannot earn our salvation. We also see the standard of truth-telling in this passage. The good life requires honesty. Jesus confronts the Pharisees because of their speech in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37. This is what he says. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure, things, treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Our words are evidence of our inward character. And by mentioning inward character, we must note that the sin or evil referred to here is not limited to our acts. This is to say we might not actually respond with evil actions, but if we think wrongly, we have sinned. If we have an evil or moral disposition, we fail in this area. God has given us the right authority and the right standard. If we want to love life and see the good days, then we must obey him. This requires us to have a disdain for sin and to pursue peace. We see this in the four imperatives from verse 11. First, we are to turn away from evil. This is what Proverbs 3 verse 7 says. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Second, we are to do good. And this is what we have already said. The good life is not doing your own thing. Whatever makes you feel good, for what God requires. And then we have these two imperatives together. Seek peace and pursue peace. We cannot actually, we cannot casually go after peace. When you're applying for a job, you really won't. You don't do it in a lackadaisical way. You go after it. When you're running a race, you don't jog, you sprint. We're to pursue peace with all of our might. ...how we live distinctively from the world, and yet pursue peace with those in the world. Paul us, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. In other words, we need to live life with the right attitude, unity and harmony, and the right response blessing instead of cursing. And these two are accomplished by understanding that God's word is the right authority. Living in this way, we should lead, should lead us to peace with those around us. But ultimately, peace with God is what we're seeking, which brings us to verse 12 and the right motive. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We should desire to please God so that he is for us and not against us. It's really that simple. This verse is about God's gracious care for his people and about him holding us accountable for our actions and thoughts and ultimately his promise to bring us home to heaven. Listen to these words from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13-15. to 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that he, we have the request we have asked of him. Amen. There's so much more that we could say about this passage, but I said I would pursue peace. So we should conclude. How are you living this morning? Are you living like you're loved? Are you acting like you've been set free? Do you believe his love is more than enough? If you're a Christian, you should live like you're loved because you are. You should know that his love is more than enough because it is. But I have to part ways with Mr. Hulk Nelson before you think I've completely endorsed his song, Live Like You Love. To be clear, you're working way too hard, because you're not. To be clear, Christ has done all that is necessary for your salvation, and your hard work doesn't add to it, but the Christian life requires work, hard work. We have to love sinners who are just like us, and we have to live out the virtues of this passage. Meeting these challenges is not energy wasted. It's our calling. It is required. So yes, go ahead and be who he made you to be. Be captivated by the love of Jesus for you, despite your wickedness and sin. The more and more that you know, deep in your soul, that Jesus loves you despite your sin, the more the Holy Spirit will change you to conform to his image and live how he calls you to live. He calls you to live in these ways, in unity, with humility, exercising sympathy, loving sacrificially, with a tender heart and humble mind. This is how you're required to live. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to live out these virtues. Help us to love each other to care for each other, and to forgive each other. For those who are here who have not bowed the knee to Jesus, quicken their hearts even now to turn to you and receive the blessing of forgiveness. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.